Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. We're uh, in the process of um, working through a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, which is in the New Testament. So after Jesus' life, um, this letter is written, as written actually by um, Paul, um, Sylvanus, and uh, Timothy um, are the three names at the start. Um, And uh, we're going to dive in um, in just a second. Steph kicked us off with this series last week, um, and we're going to jump in um, at chapter two. Um, I, 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 I feel like God has, God has just laid something on my heart that he particularly wants to draw out of this passage um, that we look at today. Um, and so I'm just, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to shift a few things around as we go um, and to, so that I can really emphasize what I feel it is that God is burdening me with um, that I believe will be to your benefit um, and, and, and for your blessing. Okay, um, now that, that, that uh, chapter, John 15, that Bob shared with at the start, um, where it talks about abiding in God, um, and, and as we abide in him, he abides in us. And then um, as it works through um, that passage, the ultimate goal of that abiding, um, we read in verse 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus has an objective for us, that our joy would be full. Now, when I talk about joy, um, I'm not talking about ease, I'm not talking about happiness, I'm not talking about health, I'm not talking about prosperity. Each, Each one of those things may overlap at certain points, but I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about a deep, inner peace and a sense of God's presence and affirmation and approval of us based on what Christ has done on the cross. That's the joy that I'm talking about. It provides a foundation out of which we then begin to live our lives. And Jesus says that your joy may, uh, that, you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now it's not just that this this joy is given to us by God. We actually read in, um, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can flick there if you want. Verse 24 um, of chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians. I'm a bit slow getting there, but that's all right. Um, where he says, um, where Paul writing to the church in Corinthians, um, he says this, not that we lord it over you, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. So God gives ministers, he gives servants, he gives people to work with us for our joy. That we might be a blessing, that we might encourage and inspire one another to step into that fullness of joy that Jesus spoke about in John 15. Bringing it a little bit closer to home with our passage this morning. When Paul writes to the Philippians, Philippi, the church in Philippi, he's, is, is, is where he's just been before he comes across to Macedonia and to Thessalonica, which is where we're going to land today. But in, the, in Philippi, um, he and Silas have just been put in prison. Um, they've just been um, essentially um, 
put out the city. And then he says in um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So this is right before Paul then arrives in Thessalonica. Right? He's talking about a joy, um, working and partnering with one another for joy to be established. Um, and just before, but just, just, I was literally printing, printing it out, and then God just gave me um, this, this verse, um, the path of greatest joy. And now that's a funny phrase when you think about what, what is Paul talking about when he talks about joy? Because if we look at Paul's life, right, he endures beatings. He's just been put in jail in Philippians. Um, he enjoys rejection. He enjoys being chased out of cities. Um, he also enjoys miracles. He also enjoys salvation. He also enjoys the kingdom of God um, coming. But when you look at it on the surface, it's a bit of a mismatch of, I'm not sure if that's joy or what. But as I mentioned before, the joy of God that lays a foundation in our heart and our lives to be able to step into all that God's called us to. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about joy. And so we're going to look at how um, Paul essentially explains that um, in 1 Thessalonians um, when he writes to them. Um, and so uh, we're going to jump into um, 1 Thessalonians. Um, but just before we do that, um, in Acts um, chapter 20, verse 35, um, Paul is talking about um, the authenticity of um, his message, um, which actually is, is basically what he's trying to do in these verses. Um, and he's writing to the Ephesian elders. And at the end of Acts uh, chapter 20, um, in verse 35, um, he says to them, he says, um, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself it is more, said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so I have a very simple question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive? Because you see, in our society, what we like to do is we like to put ourselves at the center of everything. And so, when we, when, so this morning, when we talk about um, what that looks like to give ourselves to uh, other people, that actually it might be for our joy. It might provide that foundation in God. Actually, it, it, it riles against something of a cultural idol of us, individualism, where we want to put ourselves on the throne. So let's dive in to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, 
but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, um, Lord, for... Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, thank you that we can sit under your word. And Lord, we pray that as we open up this passage today, that Holy Spirit, you will come and speak to the depths of who we are. That Lord Jesus, you might be increasingly exalted in our hearts and midst. And that Lord, you would take center place. That Jesus, you would be seated on the throne and everything else brought in submission to that. Lord, we want to honour the work that you do. And Lord, we want to create space for you to move. And so, Lord, I pray right now you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage today, um, as I mentioned, is written in the plural. In fact, most of this letter um, is written in the plural because it's written um, from Paul, Silvanus, also known as uh, Silas, um, and Timothy. Um, And um, scholars think that Paul was the primary author, largely because it's his voice that we hear, uh, if you like. It it, it mirrors a lot of his other writings. It mirrors a lot of um, his other... um, explanations, the way he unpacks certain things. It kind of almost uh, mimics some of that elsewhere um, in Scripture. Um, but the reason, the reason um, we think that Paul uh, actually wrote in the plural sense was, was as a demonstration of what unity looks like. Um, that it's a collective show of partnership um, with, uh, in this case, brothers, um, that actually uh, they came together to Thessalonica. And even as they've moved on together, their hearts collectively are for the brothers um, in Thessalonica. Paul never actually went back uh, to Thessalonica at this point. By the time he wrote the letter, he'd sent Timothy back um, a few months later. um, And then Timothy brought a report back to uh, caught up with um, Paul in Corinth um, and then wrote. uh, And then Paul seems to write this letter from them back to um, the church in Thessalonica, which means actually um, they would have had a close relationship um, with Timothy 
who would have gone back and actually served the church, encouraged them, strengthened them, and then brought a report back. But Paul is saying, well, actually, we're in this together. All of us, we carry you in our hearts. Um, and then you can see the depth of love um, and just the overflow um, that he pours out. You know, um, you've become very dear to us. Um, so being affectionately desirous of you. There's such an affinity with them. Um, and yet what's interesting um, is in Acts chapter 17, when you look at the context, which Steph opened up last week, um, they were there for about three weeks, maybe four at a push um, before um, a Opposition springs up and they're basically chased out of the city um, to Berea, which is not actually that far away. Um, and then, uh, again, they start sharing the gospel and things will happen there. Um, but essentially, they're with the, the, the guys in Thessalonica for three weeks, maybe a month tops. So it's, kind of, it's a bit of a sort of fleeting visit, really. Um, they, they, they formed this relationship seemingly very quickly. And so actually what we have in our passage today um, is, 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 is not necessarily deep doctrine, teaching, instruction. It's actually something of Paul's heart for them. So actually there's very little in terms of instruction that we can take from this. But what he's doing is he's modeling the purity of heart, the sincerity of heart, he's modeling for them what it means to, in verse 8, to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We gave ourselves to you. And now throughout our passage, um, Paul is actually pointing them back um, to evidence of this, of when he was among them. Um, and it may be that there's others that have come in to kind of undermine the gospel or undermine uh, the message that they brought or even to discredit Paul and the others. Um, and, and what he does is six times throughout these 12 verses, he says, uh, he says things like, you yourselves know or you remember or you are witnesses of these things that we practiced amongst you, of these attributes, these characteristics that were evident amongst us. You were there. You saw them. You experienced them. You received them. And so Paul is writing to remind them of the depth of love and the relationship and just how very dear the Thessalonians are to them. He gets into teaching, gets into doctrine, he gets into the other stuff throughout the rest of, uh, the, book, uh, throughout the, rest of the letter um, in 1 Thessalonians. But here, it's about relationship. It's about connection. It's about partnership. It's about intimacy. It's about, it's about that depth of working with one another, shouldering together um, for the kingdom. And this passage can be essentially split into um, three sections. We're going to look at it in three sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through to 7, um, and then we're going to skip 8, and we're going to do 9 to 12, and then we're going to come back to 8. Largely because verse 8 kind of is, if you like, the climax of these 12 verses, um, and then uh, everything either side is, if you like, evidence of verse 8. Um, so... Um, at the beginning then, from verses 1 to 7, um, Paul makes use of contrasting statements. Um, and that's perhaps to address some of the specific accusations um, that Timothy's picked up in his report. Timothy's come, uh, 
caught up with um, Paul in Corinth, and he's brought this report back. And so maybe um, Paul is tackling some of these specific things. But in verse 1, he says, Our coming was not in vain, but in boldness to declare to you the gospel of God. In verses 1 and 2. And you see, Paul's point is that even though they've been shamefully treated in Philippi, even though they've been uh, put in prison, even though they've been chased out of cities, even though they've been um, persecuted, they're not shrinking back. These guys weren't on the defensive. They didn't run away to Thessalonica to hide. It wasn't... um, He even points out that actually the evidence of the fact that you are believers shows you that we weren't there to hide. We weren't going to give way to fear, but we were going to walk in boldness. We were going to proclaim the word of God boldly amongst you. We weren't going to live in fear. And then when you look at what Paul does, he goes from Berea down to Athens and then to Corinth. It's literally just, I mean, he's just boldness after boldness after boldness after boldness. It's almost like he can't help himself. But because he's he's pursuing something greater than his happiness or his ease. He's pursuing the fullness of joy as he abides in God. So they're not fearful, but bold. And then verses three to four, he says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or deception, but we have been approved by God. They weren't in Thessalonica by chance, Uh, This wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just an opportunistic moment. Um, Their presence there had been designed, orchestrated, and approved by God. It doesn't doesn't spring from some error or weakness in their character. Um, It doesn't spring from some insecurity, thinking that they might find favor there, that they can... um, kind of please certain people that they might find uh, people that can that that will be sympathetic to their opinion Um, they arrived in Thessalonica under the direction and authority of God they're not trying to please man but God they're not they're not giving way to insecurity but they're trusting and finding their security in God as he leads them and as he directs them into wherever that may take them. God just reminded me of that verse in James, where he says, why do you say some of you tomorrow will go to this city, to that city to trade? He said, you don't know what tomorrow brings. He said, you don't know what tomorrow brings. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. I'm not going to find insecurity or I'm not, going to, I'm not going to find insecurity and therefore start clinging to certain things. I'm not going to start chasing after stuff because my security is in God and he leads me and he guides me. And so I just want to encourage us just in this moment, what does security in God look like for you? And what does insecurity look like? In those moments of insecurity, what do you cling to? Because we want to flip that on its head. And we want to find our security. We want to find our identity in who God says we are. And let, and, and let, and let that continually grow and develop. Um, and then uh, finally, in verses 5 to 7, um, Paul says, um, 
They never came with words of flattery, nor greed, nor seeking glory. But we were gentle. Flattery is essentially telling somebody um, what you think they'll want to hear. And Paul is saying that we didn't, we didn't come looking to get an angle. We didn't come looking to try and find some way of, of getting the upper hand. We didn't come um, because we were greedy or we were seeking glory. We didn't come because we were looking for an elevated status. We didn't come because actually we, we wanted to um, increase our comfort and um, our ease. He says the word... Um, he says, we came with gentleness. Now that word for gentle there, um, actually in the, if you have an NIV, it's translated in the NIV as like little children. I, we came like little children. And the meaning of that gives a sense of, of, of innocence. That meaning gives a sense of sincerity of earnestness about what they were truly desired and then living honestly out of that conviction rather than trying to, to gain the upper hand with people or trying to manipulate circumstances or trying to um, um, take control of the situation. They weren't looking to manipulate anybody. They were looking to live with honest and sincere and purity before them in Thessalonica. And so they weren't fearful but bold. They weren't insecure but they were secure in God. And they weren't manipulative. They were sincere. And then we're going to jump to verse um, 9 and 12. We'll come back to verse 8 in just a second. We then begin to see a practical evidence of this being outworked. So those memory statements, as you know, you are witnesses, you remember, um, that's, that's essentially what he's calling them to. So in verse 9, um, we almost see these ideas being mirrored. So where there was um, boldness, security, and sincerity, from verse 9 onwards, we start to see sincerity. We start to see security. And we start to see boldness. In verse 9, um, it says... Um, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day we, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You see, we remember, we worked so hard so as not to be a burden so that we didn't put anybody under pressure to have to provide. They were sincere and pure in their motives so that they could proclaim the gospel. And then verse 10, he says, you're witnesses of our conduct. He says, witnesses of the character that's being formed in us by God. And we live to please him. Our confidence and security are in him. He says, we, um, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. There was, their security was in, in what God was cultivating in their hearts um, and their characters. And then verses 11 um, through to 12. For we know how we exhorted. He says, uh, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you 
and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. To exhort is to, is to literally to come under support and lift up, to raise up. So when somebody exhorts you, they lift your head. And, and all of a sudden, you, you breathe in, you feel your chest getting bigger, your chin lifts. You're being exhorted to something. And here, Paul says, um, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. How we inspired you to walk in boldness. We know the context of this. They're, they're facing much uh, persecution. In fact, to give you a little glimpse, in verse 8, uh, no, uh, in verse... Uh, in verse 2 um, declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict and yet he charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God in the, in the face of that conflict step out in boldness believe God for salvation walk in confidence of who he is and what he's done You see, um, Paul's point is that these attributes weren't only evident in, in, in his life and Sylvanus and Timothy's lives, um, but also by their partnership, by the Thessalonians' partnership in the work and by the giving of themselves to that work. He's saying actually in verse 12, the Thessalonians are beginning to walk in these attributes and he's encouraging and exhorting them um, to do that to walk in a manner worthy of God. So now we're going to tackle verse 8. I'm just going to read it again. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And if we're not, if we're not careful with, with, with verse 8, we can kind of miss the power of it. Um, because it seems to be quite um, a sentimental verse, right? Um, it kind of, it, it, it's a very affectionate um, verse, um, but there's, there's huge power behind what, what Paul is saying. See, he's not, just, he's not just gushing his love for them. He's not just overflowing um, with, with appreciation and love and care for them. Um, he's not just lost himself in kind of saying nice things. You know those people that kind of get, um, kind of get carried away, um, like saying nice things. That's not what Paul's doing here. Um, he's saying, he is saying that the, because the Thessalonians have become so dear to him that he, Sylvanus, and Timothy shared not only the gospel, but our own selves. That Paul is saying we gave ourselves fully to that relationship. We gave ourselves fully to that communion, to that, to that fellowship. We gave ourselves completely. We were committed. We weren't committed to what was in it for our benefit. We were actually committed to giving of ourselves for your benefit. You see the subtle difference? That all of a sudden, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, they're not in it for what they can get out of the relationship. He's already told us that they don't seek glory from man. If he wanted glory from man, he should have stayed there longer than three weeks. Right? He should have built an empire. 
He should have built, he should have built a church that grew into thousands, that had people chanting his name, that had people, you know, like, like the crazy stuff that Christians do, right? But he doesn't. They move on because God moves them on. Admittedly, they're chased out of the city. But he doesn't go back. He's not seeking his own glory. He's there. The, the, the guys are there for what they can give to the Thessalonians. And that's, that is the gospel of God, but it's also their very selves. We gave ourselves to you. You see, in verse 12, Paul kind of rounds that thought out. Because by exhorting them to walk in a manner worthy of God, like a father with his children, he is encouraging them to follow the pattern that they themselves have modeled to them. This way of giving. This way of generosity. This way that leads to much joy in God. If anything, if anything, he's actually calling them to perpetuate this act of giving. So he's saying, we've given ourselves to you. Don't give back to us. Give out. But see the model that we've set for you. See the pattern that we've set for you. And then give yourselves to one another. Give give yourselves to the work of God. I think... um, when, when we talk about relationships, um, in our culture, it, it's increasingly common um, to uh, start trying to identify what are the benefits to me. What are the things that I can get out of this relationship? It's kind of like, um, it, 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 in its kind of most cynical sense, it's kind of like a social contract where you think, okay, how can I leverage and manipulate as much out of this for my benefit? And, and if I can't do that, cut it off. Right? Um, but there ought to be a balance in, 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 the way that we, in the way that we invest in relationships. Now, I'm not saying that because we have needs, we shouldn't look for those needs to be met in other people. I'm not saying that. But it's only half the message. And if we stop there... I actually believe we limit the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'll get into that in just a second. But we limit something of the power of God at work in us because we're looking to serve our own needs rather than what we can give. Rather than um, acknowledging what Christ has done in me by his grace and then giving out of that place of boldness, out of that place of security in God, out of that place of sincerity of heart where we just lay ourselves bare before one another and give ourselves in a pure, unadulterated way, in a way that cultivates the most joy and blessing for others. In Philippians 2, um, verses 3 and 4, Um, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only 
to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, it's easy to make yourself the priority. But we're to count others more significant, more important than ourselves, so that we can strike that right balance about giving it to one another. And actually, if we're all giving to one another, then whatever needs or lack I have won't be met because I'm trying to cling to something. It will be because God has placed gifts in other people that they use as a blessing to speak into my life. But if we invest in relationships for the sake of what we need, we draw a line in the sand. And we're not prepared to enter into that sort of relationship where we give ourselves um, to one another. In fact, in this verse in um, Philippians, Paul goes on to describe the model or the pattern that Jesus gave us. Who gave everything for my sake and for your sake. Jesus didn't hold anything back, but he gave himself entirely. He gave himself completely. He gave himself perfectly. He gave himself to the point of death on a cross. You see, this is, this is the grand story of, of Scripture. That Adam and Eve were actually in perfect relationship with God right in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But through their disobedience in Genesis 3, that relationship became broken. And all of a sudden, they set themselves as most important. They elevated themselves above God. It was selfish ambition conceit, pride. And this struggle for self-elevation, for individualism, as we might call it in, in our culture today, it leads to a struggle and pain as we see throughout the rest of, uh, from Genesis uh, 3, 4 onwards. It's not just in their relationship with God, but they in, in, endure struggle and pain in their relationships with those nearest and dearest to them. And God actually provided a way for humanity to come back into right relationship with God, to come back into right relationship um, with one another. In the book of Exodus, he gave the law to Moses. And he said, well, this is how you do it. The Ten Commandments and, and, and all of those uh, chapters about how they were instructed to live. But the problem is, instead of providing a way for humanity to do that. It actually became an obstacle. It became something that only highlighted how far short we'd fallen of God's standards. Especially given that all of us are born into this sinful pattern. This, this idea of putting ourselves at the center, of, our, of us putting ourselves on the throne of our lives and everything revolving around us. But in our desperate state, in our hopeless state, God sent Jesus into the world to live that perfect life and ultimately to die in our place. Jesus died on that cross. But because of his perfection, 
Death had no right. Death had no claim over him. And where he died, he died in our place. He died the death that we should have died. And he exchanged his life for the punishment that we deserved, death. And in John 10, um, chapter, uh, verse 18, Jesus talking about this incredible sacrifice that he makes, how he gave himself completely. He says uh, in verse 18, no one takes it, talking about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. You see, Jesus was perfect. And through this exchange, he reconciles humanity to himself, that we can be raised to new life in him. That that fullness of joy that, that, that Jesus spoke about in John can begin to be cultivated, can begin um, to grow uh, within us. You see, when you come and put your trust wholly in Jesus and receive the gift of Jesus' death on the cross, you're dying to yourself You're removing yourself from that throne that Jesus might take that place. That he might be the one that sits on the throne of our lives. That he might be the one in which we find security. That he might be the one in which we find everlasting joy. See, actually, the Christian life is is kind of a journey like that. Constantly pursuing more and more of God's joy, that the fullness of, um, that his joy may be in us and that that joy, your joy may be full, Jesus said. Now it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 minutes or for 30 years. This giving of yourself is what we've been called to. In fact, if Jesus, if Jesus comes to be Lord of your life, he will not come to be anything else. He is Lord or nothing. Which means we give ourselves fully to him. Everything. And then what we find is as we grow in our relationship with God, there may be certain points at which he begins to highlight certain things. You go, oh God, I didn't know I was still struggling with that. God, I I didn't know I was still trying to find security in that thing. I didn't know that I was, I, I, was, I was seeking answers in that place. And in those moments, we have a choice. We have a choice to either go, ah, do you know what, it'll be all right, just crack on. Right? Or we go, do you know what, Jesus, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to give myself fully to you afresh. Take that part of my life that you've just revealed to me. I want to bring it under submission to you. Lord, that you would come and deal with some of those feelings, some of those flaws in my character, some of those weaknesses that Jesus, they might become strengths to the praise of your glory. Because you see, when we find that foundation of joy, that brings him more and more and more glory. And that is our ultimate goal that we would bring him more and more and more glory.
And so we do two things. We give ourselves to God first and then to others. That's, 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 that's the model that Paul sets out for us in 1 Thessalonians. He does elsewhere in scripture um, that we give ourselves first to God and then to others. And we give ourselves fully to God and fully to others. And so it comes back to my original question that I kind of posed at the start. When Jesus said it's more blessed to give, or when Paul quotes Jesus as saying, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that there is tremendous blessing in bringing glory to his name and pursuing everlasting joy in him? And pursuing that at the expense of perhaps ease, pursuing that at the expense of perhaps health, pursuing that at the expense of perhaps um, some of those other things that I mentioned. But pursuing that for his glory and his glory alone. Now, it may be that you're in a position where you're sat there thinking, I, I, I don't really have anything to, to bring. I don't really have anything to give. I don't really feel I've, I've got anything within me. It may be the reason that perhaps you've not joined one of our small groups, a gospel community. It might be the reason that you're not part of a serving team. It might be the reason that you're not giving financially. Because all of those things, you go, well, what's my contribution? It's not really much, is it? It's just a little... You know, I turn up half an hour early and I do this thing and I'm done. But it's not about the act, it's about the heart. It's about giving of ourselves. And here um, at Rev, I want to encourage us to be giving on ourselves because God has done so much in us and out of that do we give. Christ works in you. Give out of that. The Holy Spirit is in you to equip and empower you. Give out of that. The word of God is in you. Give out of that. Spiritual gifts have been given to you. Give out of that. And John 4.14 talks about a fountain that is within you. Give out of that. Out of that place, out of the overflow of what God has done in our hearts, give.